everybody uh, to School Psych Podcast. I hope that everybody had a refreshing, relaxing break. We're we're getting back into our podcast groove right now. So happy, happy to be back. I'm really excited for tonight's guest. I heard her first on a uh, another podcast and was just intrigued by what she had to say and thought that it was a really good conversation. So happy to have uh, the conversation now brought over to school psychologists to kind of share in this discussion. But my name is Rachel. I am a school psychologist in the state of Maryland. I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca, who's going to tell us how uh, you can participate live tonight. Rebecca. Hi, everybody. I'm Rebecca. I'm a school psychologist in the state of Florida, chilly Florida today. It was in the low 50s most of the day. So anyway, that's my weather report. And I'd also like to tell you how to participate. So if you are tuning in live, which I hope you are, because I hope this will be a lively discussion. I think that it may be. Um, just chime in right alongside your video. You have to be signed into your YouTube account or your Google account, um, but you can uh, chat right along the video. If you'd like to make a comment that's a little bit more anonymous, not from your um, account, you can message us on Facebook, either on the School Psych Podcast page or on School Psych, your school psychologist. You can message or you can post right under the post for the, uh, the podcast, and you can tweet at us at Podcast Psyched on Twitter. And please try to use the hashtag, which I often forget. The hashtag is Psyched Podcast. So we'll be, I'll be looking out for notifications, and we will be um, sharing your comments and questions with our guests, and sometimes even alongside the screen of our video. And um, if you're watching later, even the recorded video, still feel free to comment because your comments get synced up with the video and we'll see them later and we can um, continue the conversation over time. And now I'm going to pass it off to Eric, who's going to introduce himself and our wonderful guest. Thank you, Rebecca. Uh, my name's Eric and I'm a school psychologist in the state of Connecticut. And it's much colder up here than it is in Florida. You're in my deck of the woods. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, as Rachel said, I, I heard Dr. Barron's on a podcast and um, really appreciated uh, what she had to say. And I think uh, it's valuable for school psychologists to talk with behaviorists and educational specialists and, um, and collaborate and understand where other folks at different areas of the field are coming from and uh, to improve our scientific practice. So um, Dr. Behrens is a scientist educator and founder of Fit Learning. She's co-created a powerful system of, of instruction based in behavioral science and the technology of teaching, uh, which has transformed learning abilities of thousands of children worldwide. Uh, children who have struggled with gifted average uh, learning issues, um, on the, the gambit to learning disabled. Um, for more than 20 years, her system of instruction has produced a year's worth of academic growth in 40 hours of instructional training. Her learning programs effectively target essential areas such as learning, early learning skills, classroom readiness, phonemic awareness, reading fluency, comprehension, inferential language, and uh, mathematics. Um, from her early beginnings, starting in a broom closet at the University of Nevada, Reno, which we, we might ask about, uh, <laughs> how did that start? Um, uh, to her organization, Fit Learning, which has more than 30 locations worldwide. Uh, Dr. Behrens resides on Long Island with her family and is the author of Blind Spots, Why Students Fail and the Science That Can Save, that can save Them. Um, thank you for joining us, Dr. Behrens. Welcome. Well, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. And, and I'm in New York, so I'm kind of, I'm neighbors with Eric right now. Yes. Neighborly up here in the Northeast. 
<laughs> we love it. I love it up here. So I do too. I so, do too. Well, tell us how uh, how did you start from a broom closet at the University <laughs> of Nevada? It's <laughs> oh, so funny. So, yeah, I mean, luckily for school psychologists, many of you are familiar, obviously, with behavior analysts. I'm sure you collaborate and work with behavior analysts frequently. So in my training, you know, I was at a behavior science program um, and I started in the field of like most of us in behavior analysis in the field of autism. That was my starting point. I started actually working in autism when I was in college. And I was recruited to UNR to their doctoral program to run that autism project, which I did. But I, I'll be honest, you know, my passion always resided in mainstream and education. Um, as someone who's been trained in behavior science, which is actually the science of learning um, in that way, which a lot of people don't know that, but it is. I was very confused as to why we were, you know, only working with populations of, of people who have profound disabilities. And, and of course it makes sense because when you have people with severe learning challenges, people who understand the science behind that process know how to accelerate learning gains with even the most disabled people. But what I was confused by is what about the you know kids learning to read and do math and think critically and write um, you know all of those issues that involve the learning process you know behavior science is nowhere to be found in colleges of education and in teacher training programs unless it's special ed and, and mainly autism focused. So I was confused by that, and luckily a couple of my graduate student buddies were also like, "What what's this about?" So we decided we would start a, a we would volunteer and start a tutoring project um, in, in our program. And our faculty said, fine, we're not paying you and you're gonna have to do it yourself, but go ahead. And the university gave us this hilarious janitor's closet, which was the only available space that we turned into a session room. It kind of looked like a serial killer's lair when we started, when we walked in there. I mean, really, I'm serious. For the first time we walked in, we were like, wow, um, how are we going to make this work? But we did. We kind of made it cute and bedazzled it. And even though there was like a warning asbestos sign outside the door on this other panel, we were like, wow, parents. But I'll tell you, we started working with the, the kids of faculty, mainly in the behavior analysis and psychology department. Um, but because we understand the learning process from the scientific perspective, Pretty quickly, we figured out what we were doing, um, and we only started in mathematics, um, but we were making some really amazing gains with kids in math, and so we expanded into literacy and so on and so forth, and we got, we, luckily, we got moved to bigger and bigger rooms and lecture halls because we actually started, there were a lot of kids coming in from the community, and the Reno Gazette, art, um, the Reno Gazette Journal did an article on us, and anyway, so that's why we started in a broom closet, but I will say... Um, we ended up serving as a source of competition for the tutoring program that the College of Education was um, in charge of. We had a lot of kids leaving that project and coming over to our program instead, and that caused some uh, upset. So we actually got asked to leave camp. I mean, so we, we were told we had to cease and desist. Um, long story short, that's when we started it as a private company off campus. My husband had gotten involved and I was like, I'm not giving up on this. So we started it. We started fit learning off campus. The university said, we don't care. So we did it and we, we maintained a graduate school affiliation, trained graduate students anyway. So that's how fit learning started. I'm 25 years ago. <laughs> I'm aging myself, but so that's why we started in a janitor's closet. 
That's awesome. And uh, school psychs, uh, as Sue said, can relate to it. We, you know, we reference the clothes, the closet office that we're often kind of put into. I, I, I'm glad that you upgraded and, and were able to get out. Many of us are stuck in the clothes. You know, I've been in a lot of IEPs and I've been in a lot of schools and I've been in a lot of those school psych closets that are, that. Uh, yes, I, I relate. I feel your pain. <laughs> Oh, I have a, a question for you right off the bat. And because I found I find it really interesting about like behavior science as as the science of learning, because I think there are a lot of, you know, other people that might say, hey, you know, what about the cognitive scientists? And certainly what about the neuroscientists? Um, and do you think that that those aspects of learning are just so focused in the brain or in yes. memory and processes. Can you yeah. tell me a little bit about that? Absolutely. So I will say that behavior science is now very closely aligned with neuroscience. Um, not so, not necessarily cognitive science, but neuroscience for sure. Because you know what we've now just what we've known in behavior science for a long time, and now what neuroscience has discovered with that technology that is now possible to study neurological changes and neurological transmissions is. You know, we, we've known in behavior science that learning occurs through the repeated reinforcement of behavior over time. So when a behavior occurs and is followed by a reinforcing consequence in the environment, that produces a neural. Now we know, we never knew this in behavior science. We just measured the behavior and saw that, oh, we reinforce this behavior and it increases because we measure everything like, you know, we measure behavior in behavior science over time. So we knew it was happening because we would identify a behavior that needed to increase, right? That we wanted a kid to do more. And so we would reinforce with explicit reinforcement that behavior. And guess what? The frequency or rate, right? Would increase over time. And so we knew that we had produced learning because behavior had changed in rate. Well, now neuroscience has discovered through technology, you know, the, the neurological counterpoint to that process, it's, it's, it's inside of something called long-term potentiation. So it's really what happens neurologically when reinforcement is happening. And so what we know is that, you know, learning is a symbiotic process that re requires behavior, a reinforcing environment, and a brain that that's working at the same time. So you can't separate these things. Now, there's cer certain scientists that want to that want to focus on cognition, you know, as kind of this autonomous thing that does its own thing or the neurology, but no, none of that works on its own. It, it you know, a, you know, a brain doesn't work without a behaving organism and a behaving organism doesn't learn without an environment. So we know that all of that works together, behavior, environment, and neurology all go together to produce the learning process. Now in behavior science, we don't measure neurology. We don't have access to that, but, but we don't need to because the founder of our field, B.F. Skinner, discovered rate of response, which is count per time. So for instance, you know, hundred phonic sounds per minute or 50 math facts per minute or for what Skinner was doing, you know, bar presses per minute by a little rat in an operant chamber, which is what kind of led to all of this. Um, we don't need to measure neurology because we have a behavioral indices of that, which is, is rate, which is, you know, measuring behavior in time. And then when you measure behavior and then you actually continue to measure that over time, you can get an actual index of learning that we call celebration. So, you know, acceleration is really just a slope. So if you have a behavior that occurs at a certain rate and then you start reinforcing it and getting the kid to practice it, 
that's going to increase. And on a chart, it'll start increasing in this manner. And so that's an acceleration. And then if there's something a kid's doing too much of, like making errors or guessing words or a lot of the sloppy garbage kids learn to do in bad reading programs, we want to get those to go away. So we do some kind of intervention to get them reading correctly more and making those sloppy errors less. And so that, so, you know, errors going down would be a deceleration. And that's actually a quantifiable index of learning that doesn't require us putting neurons on kids' brains, which we don't do. <laughs> we don't need to. <laughs> so... So we don't ignore neuroscience. We just don't measure that. That's not our level of analysis. Our level of analysis is the behavior, but we don't discount it that it's, it matters. It does matter very much so. A lot of this is, you know, we've had past guests on the talk. Um, we have uh, Dr. Vander Hayden who uh, researches in math and whatnot, and she subscribes a lot to the instructional hierarchy and, yeah. and, and with learning kind of going through stages and, and exactly what you're talking about, like the, the rate of errors decreasing, the, the rate of responses increase, then that fluency increasing. So that seems kind of akin to that. Yes. And you know, it's so interesting how somehow it's like all gone out the window for, for education. But if you look at any, in any area of our culture where people become experts, Right. So if you think about ex people who develop an athletic expertise or, 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 you know, I'm a, I play classical guitar. It's a hobby and I play golf, but class and it's both there. I get very frustrated by both, but those are my two hobbies. And, you know, if you look at any very proficient musician, um, you know, a proficient dancer, you know, you know, they became that proficient, not because they practiced a complex piece of music all at once, I mean, I just actually, I took it up. I was like, my goal for the Christmas break while I was off was to learn this, one of the hardest pieces I've ever learned on the classical guitar. And it's very long. It's the longest piece I've ever learned, which is five minutes, which I don't know if you know, that's a long time for one piece of music. It's a lot of very complicated piece, you know, notes. And if I had sat down and tried to learn that piece all at once, I promise you, I would never have learned it. And what I, so what I did was I, I took it apart into literally like the smallest sections and I practiced that one section until I could do that fluently. And then I, and then I would, would practice the next very small section until I could do that fluently. And then I put them both together until I can play them both fluently. And then I grab, and it took me the entire break to learn a five minute piece of music. I just am, I'm not fluent at the whole darn thing, but at least I can play the whole thing. And now I'm practicing the whole thing but I still make errors on certain sections. So then I stop and I, I practice that little section over and over. Hello, that's how learning works. You know, we all learn that way. We learn by sh what we call shaping in behavior science, which is, you know, very small pieces of a complex repertoire that you gradually shape via reinforcement of successive approximations to the target. Um, I just don't know why that went out the window for education, man. I mean, because it's not only is it scientific, you know, neuroscience has also done a lot of work on expert performance and has discovered that that's how expert performers learn and become experts. But we also know in behavior science. So the fact that like all of a sudden now kindergartners are supposed to write in journals about their school day when the kids can't read or write letters, man, but they're supposed to be writing in their journals about their day. I mean, there's nothing more ridiculous than that. It's just hilarious. And then school psychologists two years later have to go into an IEP and say, what's wrong with this kid? Well, what's wrong with the kid is that they never mastered the fundamental skills to do any of this mess. You know what I mean? 
Yes, absolutely. And I, I, I do have to say my colleagues are probably cringing because they know I'm going to start making this about guitar. Because... Oh, you're a guitarist too? <laughs> yeah. So I'm going, was it the Chaconne? Was it Leyenda? What piece were you trying to learn? I'm going oh. through my head. <laughs> oh, are you, do you play classical guitar? I do. I play <gasps> everything, but. Oh my God. Well, I have a new, my, I just ordered a new one. It's coming tomorrow. My, my, I, I got a new one. It's coming tomorrow. My new guitar. Is it a, oh. like a, a Spanish maker? It or is a, a Spanish maker. maker. Yes. Wow. No, oh, oh, we could go off. On okay, a we'll, we'll, we'll talk. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you're absolutely right. And I do right. the exact same thing musically, you mm -hmm. know, and, and I think when we're, you know, we, we do in Connecticut, we're required to do uh, RTI response yes. to intervention, Great. you know, intervention. And that's a big part of our identification process, but that is the science, right? Identifying the, the smallest skill that the child needs in the progression in order to build right. uh, that skill and working toward mastery. And once they've right. mastered, then continuing and using that scientific method where we we right. pr provide the intervention, we progress monitor, we change the intervention accordingly. And that science is missing sometimes, or or it's hard yeah. to really get that piece of the science into our instruction and intervention. Right. Well, and that's totally right. I mean, RTI, you know, I will say that has been such a gift to schools. I mean, sadly, not all schools are using it or if they're using it, they're not using it correctly or they're, you know, they're not, they're not progress monitoring enough or they don't know what to do when their progress monitor tells them that kids are not on track. But it's, that's been a huge contribution. Um, and CBM, that, that's another thing I just don't understand. Like how is this not the national standard for progress monitoring? I don't get it because it's so easy to administer. It's quick it's actually exactly what kids are doing, not some arbitrary weird test that isn't related to the skill they're having to perform on a daily basis. I mean, the oral reading fluency assessment is them actually reading a passage out loud. Like, whoa, it's amazing. The behavior matches the assessment. Like it's so, you know what I mean? And somehow it's like the more arbitrary the test, the more valid it is somehow out in the psychological world, which makes no sense to behaviorists. We're like, what do you want the kid to do? Okay, well, why don't you measure that? Why are you measuring some confounded, weird, arbitrary thing that isn't like, if you want them to not guess words and decode, well, then train them to decode and give them feedback when they guess. <laughs> right. And we- And I'm controversial. Right. I'm a controversial figure. <laughs> we, for some reason, we are also very wedded to standardized testing, right? And, and a, a comparing children to norm samples, yeah. which though, if we use CBMs, we have a, a standardization sample in our own district, in our own school, in our own classroom. And that's, we do that all the time, right? We know Tommy's average compared to his classmates or, right. um, you know, we give Tommy a C because he's average, you know, or performed in the average range. Yeah, um, yeah it, it kind of confounds me. Um, and, and right, we measure these secondary skills Right. And attribute uh, causality into the learning process based on something that's not really related to yes. the actual thing we want to measure. <laughs> and there's many, many of us, you know, psych, school psychs, you know, you can see lots of reports from a school psych that are just a cognitive and a rating scale or whatnot, that there's no, the referral question, you know, the referral concern might be reading, but they've done 
no reading reading assessments assessments. whatsoever. And it's just like, ah, (laughs) like you have to listen to the kid read at least. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like it should be, you know, that's, that should be a red flag for, you know, anyone who's studying, you know, who's, who's a student of school psych or doing school psych, like, you know, think about, is there a point, point, point to point correspondence between the behavior of concern and the behavior I'm observing and measuring? Because if there isn't, then I, I, then you're not looking at the right thing. I mean, you know, and that's for any scientist. I mean, you know, one of the one of the luxuries of being trained at a, at a, as a PhD in behavior science is I've been trained as a scientist, and so I know, you know, the power of our of science is that you you focus on the your the observable phenomenon, measuring it in a sensitive manner over time. Um, and then using the scientific method to move it around, you know, in the direction that you want it to go. Um, and so, you know, if you're not, you know, if you failed any of those requirements, then you you got a question, you know, number one, you know, how are you being trained, um, right? To like, think, think like a scientist, you know, would a cancer doctor give the patient a Likert scale to identify what their cancer cells are doing. I promise you, no, that, you know, the, 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 the oncologist is going to run tests that allow them to see the cancer cells with their eyeballs in some manner. Um, so we have to be, you know, when it comes to human behavior and psychology, things have gotten very, very wonky. Um, somehow behavior is never considered to be the most important element of dis- of this, of the study. It's, it's the behavior is a symptom of something more important rather than the behavior is telling you everything you need to know, right? Like if it's, a, when is it occurring? If, if you have a kid who's getting, you know, disciplinary referrals out of the classroom all the time, well, my question is, okay, what's happening in the classroom when those referrals are happening and watch the kid? <laughs> is it always during math? You know, is it magically during math that he's always getting in trouble getting sent out of the classroom? Well, maybe you've got a math problem. I don't know. But like, my point is like, you know, a lot of times it's like interview the caregiver and talk to the pediatrician rather than just observe the kid in the classroom and see what's happening when the kid gets asked to leave. (laughs) Right. Right. And and the most pragmatic solution. (laughs) I think so too. And I, I just might push back a little bit on that. Like when we're, when we're looking at the observable behavior, there are things about the behavior that we may not know. True. Uh, that's very know, true. Right? And, and yeah. it, like, including how the child just feels about school or the subject. And we can break down the academic skill and repeat it and, and progress monitor it. But if this kid hates school, is depressed, has a difficult life at home, you know. For sure. The, all of that practice is still going to come to come with a like not a great outcome, not the outcome we're hoping for. Right, that's true. I mean, you know, look, and you can, you can, you definitely have to do. I mean, we would call it a functional analysis, but you'd have to kind of look at, you know, there's a lot of other factors outside of the classroom that could that are that absolutely, you know, when we think about what, what I say about behavior science is, you know, we're really historians. You know, you're doing, you're really a historian of the individual because. To understand behavior, you have to understand learning history. You have to understand the history of that kid. Um, and so when I, when I, you know, I've worked with a lot of school refusal kids in my career, a lot, um, and a lot of kids with lots of crazy behavior problems. Um, and, you know, 
the, those behaviors have a long history. You know, there was a lot, there's a lot that has happened to, to create that, that, you know, behavior pattern for a learner. And of course you can't see history. You can't see that with your eyes. So all you can do is when is the behavior high, the most probable, right? Like under what conditions is that behavior the most likely to occur? If it, you know, and that gives you some access to, okay, well, somehow when they're in an academic setting, that behavior's more, more prevalent than when they're at recess, right? Well, that tells you something. If they're happy and run around with their pals at recess and then they're under the table having a fit when it's math class, that, that gives you some clues as to maybe there's some, a history of, of failure and math class is somehow aversive and acting out has been reinforced with escape from class, most likely. So anyway, but I know what you're saying. Absolutely. There's a lot of other things that that are involved. But history is always it's always history. It's always the learner's history. Always. Which I don't feel like it's well accounted for oftentimes in a static assessment, right? Like a static standardized test. That that that's, you know, one of the points I was trying to make in that other podcast was, you know, when a kid sits down and does a test of whatever sort, you know, that's a measure of performance, right? And there are a number of reasons why a kid could have performed in a way they did. Um, but we can't see any of those those causes, right? We can't see the why. We only see the performance. We, we, all, we make assumptions about why they performed in certain ways. And I like how in that, in that podcast you talked about, yeah, we're, we're measuring behavior. I mean, this is performance on a test. It's whether they got the question right or wrong or how quickly they got it. You know, we're measuring the output as behavior. But then we're taking that and oftentimes making assumptions about neurology, that this means that they're having difficulty with, you know, this memory process that is related, this and this is located in this area and, and things like that. And that that is a bit of a jump is what you were kind of saying, you know, saying in there. It is a jump and it's not, a, it's in, and I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not trying to offend anyone, um, but it's also not scientific, you know, because, you know, as a scientist, you would never infer cause um, that you haven't demonstrably measured um, and also replicated over and over again, you know, using the scientific method. So when you measure a behavior and then you, then you say why you got that behavior with no evidence, that's not a scientific process. And so I do think we have to be careful because there's a lot of kids getting neurological impairment classifications of various sorts. I, I mean, I have a lot of those enrolled in my organization all over the world. Kids who've been given dyslexia diagnoses, dyscalculia diagnosis, I mean, you know, dysgra all the diagnoses that you can have. And what's, I'll be honest with you, more often than not, those kids have a history of instructional failure. Um, they never mastered phonics. They never mapped, they never learned how to decode. They actually worked, you know, they were actually doing what they were. This is what makes me the most angry. And to be honest with you, why I wrote my book was, you know, kids are actually trained to read in a manner that then sets them up to qualify for dyslexia diagnoses. Because one of the most common reading, I don't even want to call it a teaching strategy because it's so horrifying, but it's just guessing. Look at the first letter and look around and find a clue that tells you what the word is. So then kids get ocular. Do you know how many ocular diagnosis kids I have? 
whose eyes jump all over the page, guess why their eyes jump? Because they've been taught, they've been told to guess since they were five. All they do is search for the answer somewhere that's not the stimulus they should be looking at. They should be looking at the word that should occasion their, their decoding. But the word doesn't occasion anything. What occasions their their eyeballs look is like, where's the clue? Where's the clue? Like they, So then they are going to these weird ocular therapy things that have no scientific validation whatsoever. And it's just a mess. Kids are taught to guess. And then they're just diagnosed with dyslexia several years later. Because why? Because they guess. Because they stick things into words that aren't supposed to be there. They leave things out that are supposed to be there. Because they're not trained to actually carefully attend to the letters of a word and decode them. Um, so it breaks my heart because I have there's a lot of kids who are given life sentences at, at six, right. seven, eight years old. And it's not real. It's that a behavioral repertoire that is very sloppy and poorly trained. And all and it just requires effective, precise instruction and repeated reinforced practice to fluency. And it's fixed. <laughs> right. And we have publishers that are still pushing the three queuing method. And uh, I, you know, the science of reading is calling them out, but we still have school districts purchasing this material and demanding yep. that their teachers utilize it. Quite sure where the accountability is on this. There, I, it's I, it's shame. just shocking. I mean, yeah. and you know, when they, then you, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, say it on the podcast, but I think we all know the, the, the kind of pioneer behind the balanced literacy approach, who's now saying, oh, well, the new research indicates that maybe we need to, that's, I just don't even know how people get away with that. This is decades old. You know, this, the, the, the difference between, uh, you know, in reading proficiency of people, of kids who learn phonics and decoding and those who do not are clear. I mean, California lost lawsuits in the eighties for this, you know, it was called something different. It's a new name, you know, that when it was back in the eighties, when whole language was the thing and in California, they got sued by parents because of the illiteracy rates. So it's just shocking to me. The science is very clear. This is not about science and outcomes. This is about money and, and publishing companies and dogma, ideological dogma. That's what it is about. It's not about evidence. I mean, more like, I don't know if anyone's familiar with the new numbers, the new NAEP National Assessment of Educational Progress numbers since COVID, but, you know, we're in the United States of America and more like 90% of children of color are below proficiency in all academic subjects now. It, it was it was 80% before COVID. Now it's closer to 90%. Uh, that, that is shocking. And that's the same goes for low-income kids. And I don't know groups doing great. We're close to 70% of all kids are below proficiency in reading. That, I, I don't know what else has to happen for people to maybe decide that their opinions should maybe not matter and science should, I don't know. <laughs> it's just weird. No, it is. And and I, I agree. I mean, we have this thought, and you said dogma I, really well. I, I think um, one of the guests that we've had on before suggested that people's theories trump science, you know, and uh, right, same kind of thing, right? Um, but our science needs to lead the way with science and yeah. we need to be practitioners of the craft appropriately. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And look, you know, I think there's, you know, I know that there's a, there is a purpose to classifying kids. You know, oftentimes it gives kids access to supplement or services. Now, unfortunately, if you look at the rates of, you know, 
proficiency rates for kids who are who receive special ed services, they're not great. So, you know, those services need to improve. But it does give access to resources. It's just, you know, my whole thing is schools are never going to change if 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 psychological tests continue to give an out or an excuse for why kids are failing, right? Because when a kid, go, you know, is failing enough that they get referred and then a medical, seemingly medical cause is attributed to that failure, then the school is absolved of responsibility for that failure. And it's happening more and more. And it's it happens in shocking numbers in low-income um, communities. You know, these kids who are being failed by their schools are being classified at a higher rate than any other group. And it is it is, it should be, it's a crime. I mean, there's nothing wrong with these kids' abilities to learn. The problem is they're, the instruction they're receiving is ineffective and it needs to change. But if we can just say, oh, your child scores like this because they can't read. So of course they score like this. They scored this poorly on this battery of tests because they've been uneducated basically by their school environment. They, they have something wrong with their brain. <laughs> um, so who has, they don't have to fix anything. You know, these kids are uneducable. Right. right. And our, our whole that whole system is based on pathologizing the child and then confirming it with a low subtest score somewhere. And that's which not also is so funny because of course yeah. they can't of course they don't perform well because they right. haven't learned to perform well. We're already not performing well. We knew they exactly. weren't gonna perform well. Right. This is would you would you think they would? I mean <laughs> right. Well, I always say, you know, another thing I always say to people, um, and look, you know, I got to tell you, I, I, there's a chapter in my book called The Outcasts, and that is the chapter about behavior science. <laughs> that is the title of the chapter in my book about my field, because we have been notoriously considered as the outcasts of the psychological world, of the educational world, of the world more generally, because you know, somehow our, you know, our, our kind of viewpoint is very threatening, you know, to people, you know, when, when, when a kid performs very well, you want to attribute to their IQ, something mystical inside them somewhere, you know, like, oh, they're just very smart, right? They've got good genetics. They're, they're bright, you know, and when kids perform poorly, we want to attribute it to something being wrong with them. But in behavior science, we know that the prime, the, the number one primary driver of learning is the environment. And it's in concert with our, with our brilliant biology, like the way we've evolved to learn from our environments is remarkable and brings tears to my eyes on a daily basis. When I watch kids in my, in my centers, just like go from like not reading to reading in the 90th percentile in 40 hours of training. It's like, you know, the, the ability of a human to learn from their environment is remarkable. It is remarkable. So God, I totally lost my train of thought. I went off on a tangent. What was I talking about before I made that point? Wait, come on. What was I saying? IQ attributed to something wrong. Kids yeah. being stupid. And remarkable how human beings are adapting and oh, no, I know. yes, okay. yes, yes. So, you know, but people in this, in the mainstream psychological world, they want to attribute, 
it to mystical things like your personality, your IQ, your, you've got, you know, good math genes you've got, which don't exist by the way, that's completely has no empirical validation. There's no math gene or reading gene that's ever been identified. Why? Because reading and math are human inventions. They are passed down via instruction, not genetics. We, we create now our ability to create mathematics and reading is part of our humanity, but math and reading, I, I don't like when I gave birth to my daughter, I didn't pass down my understanding of fractions to her. I mean, for crying out loud, she had to learn that at school. So my point is some of these academic disorders are really kind of funny because it's like, wait a minute, there's nothing in the brain for math and reading. Now, there's aspects of our brain that are very useful for those skills, which is why we're able to learn them, but we still have to learn them, right? They don't just, they're not just in our brain somewhere and then unlocked over time when we're given the opportunity to like be in an environment where we're exposed to those concepts. Like it's not how it works. Like we have to learn that stuff with repeated, reinforced practice and well-designed instruction. So um, that's kind of why we're, the outcasts, because we look at the environment as number one, man. Like if that is number one, like if, if kids are doing something too much, that's getting in their way, the environment taught them to do that, you know, not their demon DNA or something that they were. <laughs> it's because, well, when, when, when mom, when, when baby whined and cried, even when they could talk and got whatever they wanted, you know, that persisted into adolescence and now they're stealing the car. Because they were stealing the car when they were two, right? They just, it, metaphorically. <laughs> Question. So, well, you know, when you, you make a distinction between kind of, you said, like, my field, like this behavior sciences, ABA, and, you know, that it's different from psychology. And I've always kind of, I mean, obviously in our psych classes, we learn about Skinner, we learn about ABA. A lot of us have kind of dual certifications and things and do some, some of these things in tangent. Do you see you know, your, your field as separate from psychology or within? And, and do you think that psychology in itself is unscientific or just some of the practices? Oh like, God. I'm not to put oh, you on the spot. You're getting me in trouble. Okay. So I will say that behavior science is more aligned with biology. Um, we're, we're, a, we're a natural science. Um, so even though oftentimes you'll find behavior science programs in psychology departments, oftentimes you'll also find behavior science programs in, in, the, in the Department of Sciences, which is really where we belong. The reason we're in psychology is because we're concerned with human behavior. And so human behavior has been notoriously the subject matter of psychology. But when I say we're in natural science, I mean, we're, we're in natural science like physics and biology and chemistry, meaning that we focus on the observable phenomenon we take precise and careful measurements of that phenomenon over time. And then we use the scientific method to move the phenomenon around. Right. So that's what natural science is. Most of psychology is actually social science, which is very, very different. So when you when you look at natural science, it always starts at the level of the individual. Right. So, for instance, you know, a biologist looks at individual cells under a microscope or chemical reactions. You know, a chemist will do an experiment with a single chemical reaction and then replicate that over and over and over and over again. So it's based on the single case over time. 
That's what natural science involves. Social science is always the opposite, which is very large samples of people, right? Maybe one or two measures. So you're getting very few measures with lots of people. And then there's math statistics applied to then kind of make sense of your results rather than direct observation of your phenomenon over time using the scientific method and then replicating that over and over and over and over and over again. And then eventually it leads to like in, in biology and chemistry, it leads to clinical trials for a new cancer treatment. But that cancer treatment didn't start with a hundred thousand people that cancer treated started with one rat, one mouse, right? So, so we're natural scientists, which is very different than social scientists. Like we would never, you'd never find a Likert scale in behavior science. Like we're going to measure the behavior. Now I'm not saying that those don't serve a purpose. Like I use, I use Likert scales for business data. You know, I'll, I'll do satisfaction surveys with my parents, with my staff, with my team, but that's very different than I would never do a survey to figure out a kid's reading issue. I would watch their reading behavior, Right. And then I would measure that over time and do some kind of intervention to, to impact something they were doing too little of or too much of and, and continue measuring that over time and seeing if it made a difference. So we're very, very different from tra traditional psychology, profoundly different. And another thing is we're inductive. Here's a little science lesson. So when you think about natural science, natural science is inductive versus social science is deductive. So when, you, when you're talking about an inductive science, observation and measurement are first. So you're, uh, you're observing and measuring your phenomenon over time. And then after you do that enough and you discover something, then you use the scientific method and you see if you can move it around and you discover something else. And then you're like, aha, I'm onto something. And then you replicate, 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 replicate. And all of that, you wrap kind of like, okay, what do you think is going on? right? Based on your science, your, whatever your procedure was, you wrap your language around it, but only after you've taken your data and, and observed a bunch of stuff. Whereas in social science, you start out with a theory. Like the most important thing is a theory, which is deductive. So rather than starting at the bottom, which is observation and measurement, you're starting at the theoretical and then you're setting around to like test your theory, right? So you come up with a hypothesis and then you do something and get a huge group and you give them some pre pre-test and then you do something else and you give them a post-test, right? But you started out with a theory, you had an opinion about it and you're like, okay, I'm going to go prove or disprove this hypothesis. That's deductive, which is very different from inductive science, which is, I'm not saying one is better than the other, but I'm saying for, for when you're dealing with moving behavior, like I would never like, you know, you're not going to change behavior at the level of the group, man. And you're not going to understand behavior at the level of the group ever, which is why a lot of these large and educational studies produce nothing. They don't produce any changes. Why? Because statistics factor out sources of variance. And guess what those sources of variance are? The very learners who are struggling, <laughs> right? Like, so that's why in, in behavior science, every single learner is their own experiment. Right. So like we get their baseline. OK, how are they reading without us doing anything? OK, they're reading. They're making all these kind of errors. They're doing all this stuff. Then we intervene and we continue measuring them. And their previous performance serves as their baseline for anything we're moving around. Right. So we're doing a site. Every single kid enrolled at FIT 
is in a scientific process. Like we're doing science with every single kid, which is, you know, another way of thinking about when I hear about evidence-based methods, that also drives me nuts because here's why, you know, there's a lot of phonics-based reading curriculum out there, not saying there isn't. And a lot of those curriculum like Orton Gillingham and Wilson and those things are, are touted as evidence-based. Sure. Sure. They, there's plenty of research that says that phonics and sounding out words help are what leads to proficiency in reading. But the reason why, and I know it doesn't work because I have a ton of Orson and I, I mean, Wilson and Orton Gillingham fallout victims that fit. Why? Because if you're not treating every kid as their own, as an individual, then that in no cookbook approach, I don't care if it's phonics or like reading gibberish is never going to work because there's every kid is profoundly different. I mean, the learning process is the same. I'm not trying to say that's not the case. It, learning occurs through the repeated reinforced practice of component fundamental skills until they are fluent. And then those component skills can be then con combined to learn something more complicated. That is the same across any kind of learner. I don't care what learner it is. That's how it works. But each kid shows up with a totally different history. You know, jo Joey can't discriminate between B's and D's and Pammy can't see the difference, can't hear the difference between an A and an S sound. Well, guess what? If you don't know how to tailor your instruction to those very different barriers that those two kids show up with, not because there's something wrong with them, but because that somehow in their learning history that got messed up. You know, then we got to tailor BD discrimination training for Johnny and we got to deal with a -F discrimination, some auditory work with Sally. Those are two very different kids. So you've got to have the ability to be a scientist with every learner you work with. And so, look, are, is phonics based curriculum necessary? Yeah. Like teachers got to have materials, but teachers also need to know how to tailor and individualize in every single thing. Um, because if you just move a kid through a program, if it's, even, even if it's phonics-based, without measurement and without really looking at that kid's individual performance across time to notice when something's not working, then it's it's not going to work. It's going to be just as effective as the balanced literacy garbage. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, and, and I see that too, where I, I have kids in, they're in the group, the Wilson group, the, the foundations group, whatever, um, and they're not making progress. And yeah, I might work with them and, and then, yeah, they, they're, they're different kids. Just they're a small group of three, but they're all working on the exact same thing. And they're three different kids, you're right, that might have totally different things. Yeah. So it needs to be kind of more individualized. When, when you're... Um, you know, in the last, in the podcast that I listened to, you, and I, you talked a lot about precision teaching, and that's not yes. something that we hear a lot about as school psychologists. Can you talk to us about what that is? I'm assuming it's the oh, thing that talking about. That's my favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> so precision teaching. So my, so I was, you know, I've, I've hit the metaphorical jackpot multiple times in my career. And the first time was when I met my mentor in undergraduate. Um, who, be, who kind of set me on my path in behavior science. But my the second time was when I met Ogden Lindsley. So Dr. Lindsley was one of B.F. Skinner's students. Um, and he was the first to bring behavior science out of the laboratory and into an applied setting with human beings. So Og's passion was, you know, harnessing behavior science to improve the quality of life for human beings. 
And he started working at psychiatric hospitals, you know, for, with people who were living in horribly abysmal conditions that were over-medicated, tied to beds, had no quality of life. And he was using behavior science to improve adaptive skills and reduce very maladaptive behavior repertoires. And so he started doing that. But then, you know, his real passion, like mine, was education. So, so precision teaching is the application of behavior science in a way that allows you to do the same level of science that Skinner did in his laboratory, but in the applied setting using something called the standard acceleration chart. So precision teaching is a measurement system. Okay. It's a way of measuring behavior and learning. Like I talked about earlier, like in the beginning of the podcast, when I said we measure behavior as rate of response. So count per time period. That's how we measure behavior. That is our scientific measure of learning. And that is what lines up with all that neurological stuff that's happening is count. It's about, it's not just about accuracy, man. That's another thing schools don't get. I don't care if your kid got hundred percent of that math test. If it took them three hours, they're not fluent, right? Great. So we, so our measure of behavior is count per minute or count per time. It doesn't have to be a minute, but we typically focus on minutes for what we do in academics, but count per time. And then we measure that over time, which gives acceleration. So the standard acceleration chart is a standard instrument for measuring behavior and learning. And precision teaching is the use of that instrument to move academic skills and improve academic proficiency. I mean, you can use it for anything, but that's what AUG really designed it for was classrooms. I'm not kidding. So back in the 60s, when we when precision teaching first kind of started, this was happening in classrooms at the group level. You know, there's a there's a one of the biggest precision teaching projects was in the Sagajawea School District. And that's published. You can find it. It's hard to find, but you can track it down. Um, was the first kind of kind of large scale empirical study of precision teaching at the district level. Um, and I will tell you that it is a way to give teachers and school, anyone who's in charge of measuring behavior and learning, the most precise means of, of it's like a lens. Like if you're like a scientist looking under a microscope, the standard acceleration chart is your microscope for behavior and learning. That's all it is. It lets you look at the effectiveness of your interventions and quickly identify when something's not working and make a change because you can see your learning as a visual representation of the slope of a line. And so we know that learning multiplies and divides. It doesn't add or subtract, right? So like cancers, anything in the organic world, if you know natural science, it all happens via multiplication and division. Learning is the same. So acceleration occurs multiplicatively. So when we look at accelerations, we talk about them in multipliers. So for instance, like times twos, that's always our goal. Our goal is a times two acceleration throughout the course of a week, which means that if a kid comes in and is reading five phonic sounds a minute, well, by the end of the, the week, I want them at 10, right? That would be a times two. And then the next week I want them at 20. That would be another times two. And then the next week I want them at 40 and so forth. Usually it goes way faster than that. But we know that times twos or better doublings mean that learning is hap is happening at a sufficient and an effective rate. If it's less than a times two, then you need to do something because it's not moving fast enough. Now, a lot of kids like at fit, we're getting times fours and times tens because of the way we're able to design practice. But like, I bet if you measured your practice of your classical guitar, if you learn a new piece, right? Like I video myself and then I count and put it on a stupid chart because I'm a nerd because you have to do it in a video because you can't count while you're playing, right? But you would probably get times 
like you've been playing for a while, if you practice right, you get times tens on your on your rate of correctly playing a stream of notes and your deceleration on your errors. So it gives teachers the ability to be an, a scientist in your classroom with every single kid. So you're not blind and you're not having to make subjective assumptions or guessing what to do or feeling helpless or hopeless or it's very empowering being a scientist in an applied setting. So that's what precision teaching is. It is the use of the standard acceleration chart to evaluate behavior and learning and do science in classrooms, which is everything. I, that's all I do at Fit Learning. Everything we measure at Fit is on the standard acceleration chart, every single thing. And I have thousands of kids, thousands and thousands and thousands of charts get evaluated every day. Um, which is why we're so effective, which is why we're able to exponentially increase gains for kids who've been failed for so many years, right? Like, because that's the point, like when you're an after-school supplement, I mean, I do have kids who come full day placements. We're not, we're an intensive alternative placement for a lot of kids who they just have been failed so much. They need a year to let us just fix the fundamental problem. And then they go back to school and they're off to the races. But a lot, most of my kids are supplement kids. We got to, they have to times two, three, four, five their peers and their learning rates. Like when I have eighth graders, which I have plenty who never learn to decode and they have glaring reading and comprehension deficits at, eight, at the eighth grade level. But guess what? We go back and they learn phonics. They learn phonetic rules. They learn how to sound out words. They move, they, we get their decoding fluency going and we do some sight reading for words you can't decode, obviously, but when I'm talking about moving an eighth grader, seven grade levels, I got to do that very fast because parents aren't going to pay me for seven years. I promise I, I, they're going to pay me for maybe 150 hours, which is what we typically do. So in 150 hours, they're proficient and they're ready to go back to eighth grade level material. But so we have to move faster than anyone else if we're going to rapidly accelerate these deficits because, you know, otherwise they're never going to get on track, which is unfortunately what happens with the majority of kids. They stay below proficiency and they graduate below proficiency. I know we're getting close, but I wanted to squeeze in maybe two quick questions. Okay. <laughs> One is, do you know who or like which schools of education are learning precision te or, or teaching precision teaching, or is it only in schools of behavior science? It's usually in behavior analysis programs. And unfortunately, that those are few and far between now. The Chicago School trains precision teaching. Um, Penn State has a good precision teaching program. You can do it at University of Nevada, obviously. That's where Fit Learning was born. Um, you know, they're, they're University of Florida, that's what, you know, that they had, University of Florida had a huge role in the chart, um, the standard acceleration chart kind of getting going in the first place. Ogwinsley was at University of Kansas. Um, so that's the home of precision teaching was University of Kansas. But it's all in either behavior analysis programs or they, you might have a behavior analysis program in a special education department. When you have that, then it's like, hooray. But oftentimes you don't have a behavior analysis program that's doing precision teaching because unfortunately, Precision teaching is not the gold standard in behavior analysis as it should be. A lot of people in ABA make the same mistake that teachers make and measure percent correct and only look at accuracy and don't look at rate of response and acceleration, which are the scientific indices of behavior and learning. And it's unfortunate 
I, I have to say, you know, I'm also not only am I controversial in the, in the psychological and educational world, but I'm also a little controversial in ABA because I'm not a fan of these percent correct things people do because that's not telling you anything about true mastery. And neuroscience, like we've known that, you know, we've been doing this in behavior science for a long time, but now neuroscience is caught has, you know, because of the technology, we know rate matters, rate matters. Like when you're talking about which you guys love these terms, processing speed, right? RAN, rapid automatic naming, right? Guess what? That's all learnable. Number one, that is learned and it is learned via practice that is measured as rate so that you can see when that fluency is achieved. Like, you know, when I assess kids at FIT, I mean, we have a very precise skills assessment um, that lets us see all the component skills like in a higher, in a, in a curriculum ladder, right? Starting from the most basic to the to more complex. And when I have these 10th graders coming in that are, you know, 10th percentile in math, guess what? Their, their accuracy scores are pretty good on core numeracy skills and on adding and subtracting and multiplying and dividing, but they're multiplying at maybe 10 a minute and they're using their fingers still when they're adding. And then you're expecting them to just solve quadratic equations. Like, uh, no, that's never going to, or, I mean, look, or calculators, but you know, again, if you have to stop and use a calculator for that part of a, of a algebraic, you're forget the SAT. Like if you've got to stop and plug in a comp, a basic, like nine times six, into your calculator while you're trying to solve a five-step equation, you're in big trouble. So um, fluency matters. And we know that in behavior science and neuroscience has has now got a lot of evidence supporting that that's what produces long-term memory. That's what produces the ability to apply skills. That's what produces resistance to distractions. That endurance component, that endurance measure of being able to perform over longer periods of time, that's about fluency. It's not about accuracy. That makes sense to me. And I want to squeeze in one last question. Yes. It's actually a tweet comment. Um, oh. and it's not a mean tweet like on the late night. Oh, mean tweet. No, it's not. I had posted that uh, from, from the ABA podcast um, that in the U.S., 20% of kids have a learning disability, but only a tiny fraction of children, less than 1%, have a real neurological impairment. And the Twitter comment is that um, I don't really believe that it's less than 1%. I know too many families that have severe LD. This is a really, that's a really polarizing number. And so is 20%. I'd say up to 5% for severe, 10% moderate, and 20% of the rest, 10 will be left with disabilities that need accommodation with remediation. So I just wondered, what do you think about the numbers? Do you think that that's actually accurate, 1%? Well, so those numbers come from my experience. So when I look at my 25 years in, in this work, right, and I've worked, and remember, I'm an interventionist. So, you know, I don't just sit in an office talking about stats. Like, I'm actually in the trenches. I am coaching teams, certifying people, working with kids, meeting with families. Um, I'm in, I am integrally connected to my subject matter. And, you know, I've, I've, my organization and me personally, I've been involved in thousands of kids with thousands of kids. And I'll tell you right now that 20% come in labeled and less than 1% have something really impaired. 
So those are my data for my own experience um, that, you know, there are real neurological impairments and nothing I've said should say that there are not, you know, I have, and I've worked with lots of those kids too. You know, I mean, there are some, there are chromosomal abnormalities. There are some true neurological, uh, you know, abnormalities that some come from acquired brain injury. Some come from trauma at birth, you know, whatever it is, there is, there are intellectual impairments that are real, but I will tell you right now that most of the time that is not the case. And that if you like um, imagine, I'll just put it out there. I mean, we'll keep going with the guitar references since we're people into that. I, I use golf too. Tonight's been very guitar related. It's because I have this piece in my head that I've been so proud of myself that I actually did. But anyway, like if you, if I put a guitar in the hands of someone who'd never played guitar and I put a piece of music in front of their face and I said, you must play this piece of music or I'm going to kill you. I promise you that person would look disabled trying to play that piece of music. They would try because their life was at stake rather than just walk out of the room, right? Otherwise they'd be like, I'm not, I can't play that. I don't know what I'm doing. They would look like they are disabled trying to play a guitar. And if they sat next to Christopher Parkening, who's one of the best classical guitarists ever, they, they, you know, you know, Christopher Parkening looks like a superhero who's not, he's just has a million hours of amazing practice and mentorship and like over his career. So when you're very, very unskilled at something, it can appear as if you have something wrong with you. And what you have wrong is that you haven't learned it effectively. You haven't mastered it. You're not fluent. So, you know, I would say that shouldn't we err on the side of that I'm right? Isn't that the actually more responsible side to err on? Like, that's how, and guess what? I stand inside of that statement because you want to know why? Because it makes me work really hard at my job because I never attribute a kid's failure to there being something wrong with them. Even when they have a real impairment like autism, Down syndrome, fragile X, I've had all those kids. Even when they have a real, just, you know, a real diagnosable condition, I never use that condition as a reason why those kids can't learn ever. And so I think that it is a more responsible position to take that it is highly unlikely there is anything wrong with that kid's ability to learn. And it's more likely that they've just not been taught the right way and they haven't had the opportunity to practice the way they need to practice to master it. Wouldn't that make us all more responsible and maybe work harder to do better rather than writing this stuff off? And that it's too easy, man. It's too easy to say this kid can't learn because they have something wrong with their brain. Come on. We have no idea. We actually don't. You, ha you haven't seen inside that kid's brain. You've never measured that kid's brain. And even if you did, that would tell you nothing because the brain changes by learning. It doesn't exist ahead of time. You know, when, it, when these brain scan studies that people use as evidence of dyslexia existing are, are, are not correct, they're correlational in nature. The only reason those kids' brains look different is, of course, they look different because they're not readers. And when they learn to read well, guess what? Their brains also change because that's what happens. The, that's the act of learning itself. Learning changes the brain. The brain isn't like already like that, like to allow us to learn stuff. No, it changes while we're learning. So we actually don't know those things. So I would say err on the edge of, I have no idea if there's something wrong with this kid's ability to learn. And I'm going to do everything I can to say that there isn't because I'm going to try to move them as fast as I can to high levels of proficiency if I can.
So I hope I didn't offend anyone, but that's, I'm very passionate about this. Yeah. And I think it's a very, I mean, lots of people, um, you know, who maybe have children who are diagnosed with dyslexia or other learning difficulties. Um, you know, it, it feels like, you know, an explanation, it feels like, you know, you can get kind of have an identity with that or a camaraderie with other people who share in that diagnosis. And so it's, it's a very personal thing I feel. Um, and so, you know, hearing things like that, but I also, you know, I heard you on the last podcast talk about, you know, the fact that these kids can look totally normal and have no deficits and no concerns neurologically. And then they set foot in a school building and then all of a sudden, and, you know, so when you think about the fact, like you said, that, you know, reading is a new thing that we've not evolved to, to read like we have to speak and to understand the language. And so, you know, it makes sense that our brains aren't evolved and it needs to be taught you know it's not maybe something that we're born being a poor reader or a strong no, reader we're not born being poor readers because we're not born reading we have to learn to read that's another red flag there's two red flags and then i'm going to stop talking one you know in, and then this is not just in behavior science this is in any natural science but we're we are i mean we are literally browbeaten in phd programs that if you are in a circular argument then you are not a scientist. So meaning, and then I mean, this is like browbeaten. So like if, if I am in an explanatory loop, how do you know Johnny's dyslexic? He can't read. Why can't he read? Because he's dyslexic. Well, how do you know he's dyslexic? Well, he can't read. Well, why can't he read? Well, he's dyslexic, right? Like that's our, so a kid gets referred because they can't read. And you would test him. And guess what? He can't because everyone's already told you this, but you got to test him again. And, you know, he can't read. And so then you say, OK, well, this is why he can't read. He has dyslexia. Do you know that for sure? Are you sure? I don't know if you're sure. I just want you to be powerfully confident <laughs> in your assumptions. So that's one. Watch out for circular logic. Right. Because I would say and I say this to parents all the time. I have no idea why your kid can't read but I'm going to assess every component skill for reading that I know is critical. And if they can't perform them, well, I would assume that that's why they can't read because they don't have the skills of reading. And I'm going to teach them those and see what happens. <laughs> All right. So there's that. Then the second red flag that I was going to say, and oh, God, I keep losing my train of thought. See, I told you nine o'clock at night. It's too late for me. I go to bed right now. Wait, it was circular logic. It was circular logic. And then there was a second one I really wanted to say. Oh, I don't know. I lost it. Uh, I, I want to be respectful of your time because you, you need to get to bed. <laughs> because we appreciate you so much. I, I do have one. I'm going to sneak in one more question. And then I think there might be another viewer question too. But I'm real, real, real fast. But when you're talking about, you know, this accelerating, you know, this two times or, or more um, to, to that rate of learning. I mean, obviously, um, there's only, you know, you you hit like a ceiling or a threshold, right? It levels off. Like you can't continually be faster at a thing. You right. Know, correct. Oh, so sure. how, how, how do you know when, okay, this skill is good. We're going to move on to the next skill. Is there norms? Is there criteria? How, That's how a really good question. So there's definitely limits for, but, it, but also it really depends on the skill. So there's something, there's two ways we identify what we call fluency aims and in precision teaching and in this field of behavior science, which is precision teaching. So fluency aims is basically what like we're aiming for the rate 
we're aiming to get learners too, right? And so there's two ways we identify fluency aims. Number one, normative sampling, meaning we test experts, not averages, experts. So expert performers, right? Like, why would I want to train kids to average? I don't, because I know what average produces, average, and oftentimes dropping below average as they move ahead grade level. So my so normative sampling is you test some experts, and we know that top math students, top math you know, mathematicians can solve, I mean, they really can solve 70 to 80 math facts a minute, right? So we set our kind of aim based on what experts can do, right? High levels of reading rates, phonic sounds, decoding. Then we look at, then we look at this functionally with every single kid. So not, so we have a kind of an aim that sets our kind of goal. And then we test fluency functionally, meaning we assess Throughout training, are we hitting retention? So like if we have a kid who's kind of showed some nice acceleration, they're approaching, you know, like on math facts, they're getting close to like 60 a minute. They seem really fluent and paced in their timings. Okay, we're going to hold practice on that for a few days, then test it again a few days later. Did it retain? So are we getting long-term memory? Number one. Number two, we're constantly checking generativity or their ability to apply a skill in a more difficult way. So if I have kids in a math program, for instance, and they're approaching, they, they're, they've got a steep acceleration on their multiplication and division facts. They're looking really solid. They're not at 70. They're closer to 50. But as I test them applying multiplication and let's say multi-step, multi-digit multiplication problems or long division problems that they've learned the concept of, right? They know how to perform the operation, but can they apply that that basic math skill more like fluently in a more complex way? And if they can, well, then I would say that that's a functionally fluent skill because they're they're already easily applying it. And then the third thing we check is is endurance. Can they perform this for longer and longer timing periods, even under distracting conditions? And does it stay strong? So we actually do what we call functional mastery checks to really identify our fluency aims. But look at an expert. How well do you sound out, say phonic sounds? Well, guess what? Your kids should say them that well too. I promise you, you can say, well, I don't know how long it's been since you practiced your phonic sounds, but you can, you know, we make kids learn 80 vowel sounds a minute, 100 consonant sounds a minute. Boom. Guess what? When they can, watch how fast they can decode words. They're not like stumbling over the ah, 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 ah anymore because when they see a sheet of vowel sounds, they are ah, 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 like, Second nature. And then they see it in a word and it's that fast for them then. Test experts. Get a bunch of teachers in a school. Let's all have a fun. That's what we do at FIT. It's fun. We have parties. When we do new programs, like I just created a whole new advanced fraction sequence. And we have aim setting parties where, you know, people who are super, like I have a lot of people who are who are brought into FIT. They're like grammar and writing people or they're reading people or they're high level math people. So I get my high level math people and we have like an advanced fractions aim setting party. Like how fast can you solve, you know, find greatest common factor using prime factorization? Go. <laughs> and then that's, that's our aim. But then we test it functionally with every kid. Right. To see what's what's really fluent. Like, sure, some experts may be like machines, but it may not be necessary to get the use you need out of it. The, the application really is the most important part. So. That's awesome. Blah, blah, blah. Sorry. That's, great. <laughs> That's awesome. And uh, yeah, all the kids, all the kids in school, like they were not, were not. I mean, if I told any random kid from a, a classroom and tested them on, you know, a, a math fluency, 
nothing like it should be. Well, and that is what's really scary because math dropped more than any other than reading after COVID. Our math scores dropped way more than even our reading scores, which is, and look, there's now literacy is so front and center. Science of reading has done such a great job pushing this forward and bringing awareness. So there's so many reading, like reading tutoring programs out there for kids, but nothing is happening in math like it should. I mean, math is, we're in, I have, it's so funny. I have the bigger math enrollment I've ever had in my entire career right now at FIT because that was a big impact from COVID a huge impact because it makes sense. If you think about it, you're even if you're not in school, you're using reading a lot in your life, but math can be such an isolated skill when you're learning it, they're not practicing it. So they, it went, it just, it really was impacted. Math was a very big impact. I cannot emphasize enough the importance of math facts fluency. It is everything. It's everything. When kids can solve 50, 60 math facts a minute, it's like, there, it's a life-changing thing. And here's another thing. Fluency is really fun. Kids love being timed. They love knowing what their goal is. And they love trying to beat their goal. And it is so fun. It makes practice so fun. It's like timed practice with a goal. It's so fun. Kids love it. It's like a sport. <laughs> yes. Well, this conversation has been so fun and so interesting, and it's even very active on Twitter. So I hope that we can continue just talking about it over time. So check out um, my Twitter feed at Becca Kamiz, where I posted about this episode and also at Podcast Psyched. Um, there's some really nice, uh, interesting comments there, too, about um, the base rates of, of learning disabilities and things like that. And oh, yeah, just teach you a way to go. I love that. That's yes. exactly right. Love it, too. That's exactly well, right. Dr. Barons, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Time. I hope I didn't offend everyone, but you know, what are you going to do? It's good. No, you <laughs> got to stop. kids. That's right. You really do. <laughs> that's, what we're, that's what we're for. I just want to help kids get really good at stuff because it's really fun to be good at stuff. It is. And I think it's a such a positive note to say that all kids can learn and we can figure out yes. how to do that. And we can yes, do that. Can. Yes. Yep. And those of you watching that think like, oh, the, there was, you know, that that's not true, that kids don't like to be timed and don't like to learn. I I, I see that because, I, I again, I use Dr. Vanderhain in spring math and very, very similar. Like, you know, you're trying to beat your best score and whatnot. When kids yeah. know how to do it and they are successful, they do. They like to show off when they know how to do it, when it's been properly taught. My exactly. kids are like, yes, let's time me. Can I do better? It's crazy. I mean, the kids <laughs> who don't like being timed are kids who have – had a failed experience with that because they were, they were being required to do something that they was above their instructional level. Mm. Like timings work right. when you're instructionally appropriate, right? Like if, right. So that's always something you're not going to move fluent. Like we got to remember the first part of our conversation, which was shaping small chunks of component skills. Like I don't train kids on all the 328 math facts at once. I mean, they learn tiny slices to fluency. And then we add a new slice, add a new slice, add a new slice. So timing is awesome when kids can actually beat a goal because it's designed correctly. Right. Awesome. Thank you so much. We're going to end and I appreciate you spending your time and even the 15 minutes afterwards. And oh yeah. Oh my God, we were 15. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Okay. I mean, 
okay. I, we feel bad for we you. Appreciate I, your time. <laughs> Don't feel bad for me. I was blabbing away. It was good. <laughs> so good. Um, and so yeah, keep commenting, everybody. Um, and then our next podcast is on two five, and we're talking about uh, vocabulary, instruction, and intervention. So that should be a fun one too. So thanks, mm-hmm. everybody. Thank you.